The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Hello, everyone. What a week in the life of a country here in the United States where I live. There is so much to talk about. Everyone is on pins and needles. If you're listening a year from now, let me just tell you where we are this week. This is the week that an American president was caught on tape trying to persuade That's about as light a verb as you can use for this. You can also say threaten or extort, trying to persuade a state official to falsify ballot results to help him overturn an election that he lost. That was the news on Sunday. Two days later, on Tuesday, two key Senate races happened. And by Wednesday morning, we learned that the Senate was going to change hands from one party to the other making the current president the first president in American history to lose the House, the Senate, and the presidency in a single term for his party. On Wednesday, he met with a mob and encouraged them to be strong and to fight, and again met with and encouraged are about as neutral as you can get here. You could also say incited. And that group then marched to the Capitol armed with bombs and zip-tie handcuffs, some of them, and all of them intent on disrupting the ongoing proceedings, which was in place to tally up the electoral college ballots submitted by the 50 states, which would result in the announcement that Joe Biden had been elected president. That was Wednesday, this riot, with shocking images of rioters climbing walls and smashing windows and storming through the hallways and chambers and putting their feet up on the desk of the Speaker of the House, while Congress had fled the scene in fear for their lives. On Wednesday night, Congress returned to the chamber and announced that Joe Biden had indeed been elected president. We're still on day four of our timeline for this week. On Thursday, we learned more details about the mob and the riot, including that five people had died, and there had been plans to kidnap Nancy Pelosi and kidnap the vice president and hang him from a tree, among other plans. On Friday, the House announced we're still on the same week. We haven't even finished a week yet. On Friday, the House announced they planned to impeach the president for the second time, which is another first, and the president was banned from various social media platforms for continuing to provide statements that could lead to violence. As I record this, we are still waiting to see what will happen in the next 10 days of the Trump presidency, but that's not really true, or it's not the full truth, we're actually waiting to see what will happen in the next 10 hours, if not 10 minutes, and we're also waiting to see what will happen in the next 10 months and the next 10 years. A rock has been overturned. Everything that was buried underneath has come scurrying out. We are facing a reality that has long been suppressed, and we've, we're facing a reckoning that has been a long time in coming. It's hard not to look back five years to when Trump's candidacy started, or should we start with the Obama years when the Tea Party started? Except, shouldn't we also look back to Fox News as the point where this started? 
Except no, it really started with Newt Gingrich in the 90s, didn't it? Except no, you can point to the Reagan years and its anti-government rhetoric and the rise of right-wing talk radio. Except no, wasn't it the Nixon years when the Southern strategy was put in place to stir up racism in order to win elections? Except, my God, how can we start there when we had the civil rights movement in the 60s and James Baldwin was telling us about all this decades before Nixon. And really, why wouldn't we look back at the Jim Crow era? And for that matter, to look back to the 19th century and the Civil War. This week's mob was carrying Confederate flags, after all. And the Civil War wasn't a starting point. That was supposed to be the finish, the end of slavery. So why wouldn't we look back to the founding of the country, when a group of colonies were cobbled together into states under the auspices of some very high-minded principles, but also some dark and dirty compromises. The idealism matched only by the hypocrisy, and slaveholders had a seat at the table and made angry demands that the founders of the country agreed to live with. The United States has always lived with that tension, that fundamental contradiction between the highest ideals of freedom and equality, and the practical reality that human beings were human, all too human, and the people in charge, the white people in charge, fell short of extending those ideals to everyone from the beginning. And why stop there? The contradiction dates back farther than 1776 or 1789, doesn't it? People seeking freedom and fair treatment did not extend it to everyone. It's a story as old as slavery itself and genocide and all the contradictions that arrived on those ships of people arriving on this continent. Period. But this is the history of literature, not the history of America, although sometimes as an American living through current, ongoing, shocking history, it's hard not to conflate the two. So let me tell you what we've got coming up. Today we have an interview I conducted with an amazing person, a writer and musician, an activist, and I'm going to call her a wise old soul, which I hope doesn't offend her. Her name is Amira Leone, and this is what I mean by that nickname or that <laughs> designation. When I took my oldest son into preschool for the first time years ago, parents know how this is. You've, when you've had this kid all to yourself for a few years and you have no real frame of reference, for who he is or what he's like. You just know him, but you don't know exactly what that means because you're not comparing him with anyone else. You just have him alone, and then you drop him off at daycare or school or whatever, the cousin's house or the playground or something, and you see him among his peers, other kids his age, and you see what his personality is like from a different angle. Is he a leader? Is he a follower? Is he... Loud and laughing? Is he shy? You can't always tell inside your home. You need to see him outside with other kids or in some other environment. So, for two years or so, I just viewed my son as lovable and little and cute and precious. He said things that made his mother and me laugh, and he tried ice cream for the first time, and his eyes got really big, and he had this personality in our household of being just a a little guy, curious and cute, a young'un. And then he got among his peers, and it turned out that he was actually mature, exhibiting compassion, taking things as they came, 
and being almost like an ally of the teacher. The teacher would seat him next to kids who were struggling with the situation of being in preschool because they were scared or nervous or anxious or something. And my son, who I thought of as being full of needs himself, had what those kids needed to help them calm down. And I went in to pick him up, and the teachers just smiled and said, Oh, yes, he's one of our old souls. This wasn't new for them. It didn't stand out in a particular way. They had a few of these kids every year, along with the kid who was excitable and the one who was funny and the one whose nose was always running and the one who got frustrated easily and the one who loved to dance and the one who seemed sleepy and the rebel. Little kids had all these personalities. My youngest son was the one who worked hard and wanted more work from his teachers and went about his business and refused to smile for the class photo. I had not done anything differently with him. It's how he came out. And my oldest son was a wise and mature little fellow, even at age two or age three. Oh, he's an old soul, the teacher said. He's just a wise old soul. It's just how he was born. It's just who he was. It still is, even today, years later. It's just him. So, our guest today is the youngest guest we've had on the history of literature, I'm pretty sure. And yet her accomplishments speak for themselves and her background and her creative energy and her spirit. She's here to talk about her book, Concrete Kids, which draws upon her experiences and delivers a message to kids in the city, kids not in the city and grown-ups everywhere too. And I recorded this last year this conversation with Amira, and I just couldn't bring myself to post it. I thought the energy that she brought to it was not right for 2020. I had fallen into the trap of thinking that 2020 was so bad, that 2021 was going to change everything, that we would turn a corner and have a new president and a new Congress and get a vaccine, and we'd all be looking at sunshine and freshness and new starts instead of clouds and doom and gloom. And so I held off and held off thinking Amira Leone and her positive energy, her youth, the excitement of what she represents. I thought we need that in 2021 as we turn the corner and not in 2020 where we're still in this blind alley. And I do think that's true. I do think we need this burst of energy, this youth this look at what's possible, this optimism, because those of us who have been around for a while know that the young people are in a much better position to change things than we were. That's me, Generation X, talking. <laughs> Generation X's great promise and hopefully our great legacy. We could not move those freaking boomers out of our way. We just didn't get that done. They outnumbered us everywhere. They had all the money and all the power and all the demographic advantages, and they demanded everything, and we never got out of their shadow. We just didn't. I'm sorry, boomers. I know a lot of you don't like to hear that, but that's how it looks from Generation X's perspective. Try being us for once. <laughs> We've had one president, Barack Obama, I'll stand behind him, did a pretty decent job, I think. And look who you gave us. Look who you gave us. I know not all of you. I'm not trying to Tar everyone with the same brush here. But man, your generation, we just could not get you to take climate change seriously or 
racism seriously or greed seriously. We just didn't get it done. So our revenge is that we raised Generation Z, and so far they are awesome. Our great accomplishment as a generation might be that we raised Generation Z and that we will have the good sense to get out of their way. So Amira Leone comes along, a leader who's ready to plow forward, shining a light ahead of her and showing the people behind her a path that they can take. That's good energy for 2021. I like it. But things didn't magically change when the calendar turned. Of course, the world didn't snap its fingers and come out of its spell and wake up in a new era. We still have challenges. We still The pandemic is worse than ever, in spite of the vaccine that's being rolled out. To that five-day timeline I set out just now, you can add that more people are dying per day of coronavirus than at any point in the past year, and I've been living in my basement since March, and I'm not alone. So there's that, too. But that's where Amira Leone's other quality comes in. She's not just youthful energy. She's an old soul, too. A wise old soul. So you'll get to hear that as well. And maybe that's the right combination for all of us as we move from 2020 to 2021. And here at the History of Literature, in this year, in these coming weeks, we'll be looking at Jane Austen and John Keats. We have a Keats expert who will be joining us and Frederick Douglass and more Chekhov, and more Proust, and Leslie Marmon Silko is on the list, and Louise Erdrich, and Mishima, and Cormac McCarthy, and all the other episodes we have lined up for you in the next couple of months, both American and world literature. Maybe that's the right combination to have here at the podcast, the spirit and energy of youth, which can bravely face forward and move ahead, and the depths of the old soul, which sees the world with clarity and wisdom. So, no Tweet of the Week this week because we've talked enough already, but guess what I keep seeing? References to the Scarlet Letter. Only this time the letter is not A, but S. And the letter stands for sedition. We'll see if that holds up in the way that tweeters and columnists and other commenters are claiming that it will for those who committed it and the politicians who supported it. As a citizen, I'm interested in seeing whether our country is strong enough to remember what these people have done. I have some doubts. We still have Confederate statues all over the place 150 years after the Civil War, which would have been unimaginable to the patriots who died for the Union cause. So whether we'll remember this as sedition or just roll over and let it be defined as some kind of freedom fight or righteous rebellion or lost cause, noble cause, whatever they call it. I would say the jury is still out on what America is going to, how they're going to view this attack on their capital. We define it one way now, but how hard do we stick to that? Our track record as Americans in dealing with its own ugly history is not good. But set that aside. As a lover of literature and as someone who just did a couple of episodes on Hawthorne and that amazing book, The Scarlet Letter, I'm enjoying the references to The Scarlet Letter. When we need a symbol for a scar, something that will attach to someone, something that needs to be worn forever, 
to announce that the person has committed a sin. We don't use the metaphor of a tattoo or a branding iron. We reach back to the imagination and the literary genius of Nathaniel Hawthorne, a man born more than 200 years ago, but whose striking little story about Hester Prynne facing the Puritans is still with us. And so we move from Hester Prynne to Amira Leone, from one strong-minded woman to another. Amira Leone, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Amira Leone, an author, musician, and playwright whose works focus on Black liberation, politics, and communal healing. Her new work, Concrete Kids, is written in free verse and explores love and loss, melody, and bloodshed. Amira Leone, welcome to the History of Literature. Hello. Thank you for having me today. Okay, so I want to talk about Concrete Kids, and you've also chosen some books that you have loved, and I have some questions about those too. But let's start with you. Uh, Were you born in Harlem? Well, actually, I was adopted, and most of my adolescence was spent in Harlem. I actually don't know the hospital I was born in, but I was born in New York City. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Okay, so you spent your adolescence in Harlem. What was your childhood like? I mean, honestly, Concrete Kids kind of navigates what what my experience was in a nutshell. But on it was pretty hectic. I was very young when I was in foster care, and I moved a lot by the time Concrete Kids ultimately takes place. Mm. Yeah, I moved a lot. I really loved to read. I loved to write. I loved to paint and to, yeah, to be outside. Um, but yeah, I was primarily raised in foster care and adopted when I was 13. Mm. So the my understanding of the world was kind of this place where I was going through incredibly adult experiences, you know, going to court and meeting with social workers and lawyers and all these things. But also I was in second grade and playing with Barbies and being treated like a child everywhere except, you know, I guess the 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 foundations of my reality, you know. Right. So that's I wrote Concrete Kids as a way of, yes, it's aimed towards children, but it's being quite uh honest 
in its reality. You know, I don't skirt around anything. I don't say, oh yeah, someone died. And, you know, it was an, it was, it was pretty much everyday experience, you know? And so yeah. I wanted to create something now that allows us to, you know, have a, a landing place where we can start conversations with young people and not shy away from the, the vastness of their intellect and what they're actually experiencing in their day to day. As much as we want to let young people stay young, us avoiding conversations that actually affect them or laws or politics or, you know, uh, you know, violence that actually affects them. We need to allow ourselves to, you know, maintain those conversations. Yeah. So I, I'm thinking of children as being a little bit like fish where they they know that they swim in water. You know, they don't have a, a realization that they swim in water uh, because they know no other possibility. I'm wondering, do you have a was there a moment when you realized that your childhood was different from what kids in other scenarios would have been experiencing? I knew that just from going into going to school. You know, mm. my school had a bunch of different different kinds of people. A lot of us were from Harlem, but some of us were traveling from different parts of New York City. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in theater when I was really young as well, and I was surrounded constantly by new uh, energies and people. So I knew from a very young age that what I was experiencing wasn't what a, a lot of other children were experiencing. But I also didn't think that what I was experiencing was individual either. Mm, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, I knew that there was a huge community of young people who were experiencing what I was experiencing, but I also knew that there were young people who, who would absolutely have no idea what I was talking about if I even tried to describe what my life was like, you know? Right. And so when you call yourself, or or let's say when you define this, this kid as a concrete kid, are you talking about growing up in the city, or are you talking about growing up in the city in a particular way? Honestly, the intro to the to concrete kids kind of, well, first of all, the intro to Concrete Kids is the first piece that was ever written for the text and also was the way that the title came to be. Because mm -hmm. I, whenever I'm in the process of anything, I tend to write a thousand manifestos. And a manifesto to me is just, you know, a letter of intention to myself mm -hmm. or to the project or to the to the theme that I'm chasing, right? Or to the to the curiosity or to the, you know, to the anguish, whatever. I just write thousands of them. And so this manifesto was, this, the first piece in Concrete Kids was a manifesto to who am I writing this for, mm. you know? And, mm -hmm. and the first thing I said is this is for the Concrete Kids, yeah. you know? And I think when I think of Concrete Kids, again, maybe we can, we can look at the intro too. It's, it really breaks it down in a way that I can't put into words, you know? Right. But I think... Whenever I think of concrete, I think of the soil beneath. I wanted concrete kids to be this thing where we look at these difficult experiences. We look at these difficult tensions in which I was being raised, in which a lot of young people are being raised, but also we find the tenderness and the celebration and the joy. You know, I don't think that you can really discuss the concrete without discussing the soil beneath it. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where my intention was coming from. It's whatever anybody really needs to land on but knowing that beneath it, there is tenderness. Mm. So New York is so full of different uh, contradictions and some of the most expensive real estate and wealthiest people in the world are just a few subway stops away. Did you feel like this was all part of your world? Did you did you travel to Manhattan at all? Were you aware of it or, or was it uh, something that was alien to you? Or Well, I mean, I was raised in the foster care system in New York City, so I... I 
I moved a lot throughout the five boroughs, mm, mm-hmm. a lot, a lot until I was eight. So I, you know, lived in Brooklyn and Queens and in Long Island. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. But ultimately, I lived in Harlem. Harlem is this really, you know, it's very, it was a village, you know, and you got to know every single person who lived right next to you, above you, beside you. I knew all of the deli owners. I knew everybody around me. My school was three blocks away. My high school was four blocks away. You know, it was a very small, but vast community, but I was very much aware. Like I was a city kid, which we stomped Mm. all over the place after school. I was in orchestra and we always went to the Philharmonic um, and Lincoln Center. And I, I also was in theater from like age 14 or so. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, we, we met at the black box theater at NYU. So I was always downtown. I ultimately went to NYU as well. So it was like a very, Manhattan was the stomping grounds, the whole of it. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. But I do agree that this kind of, this thing that a lot of people love to say, New York City is this melting pot. And I was like, literally, that is not true. Yeah. (laughs) New York City is incredibly well-organized neighborhoods of different ethnicities and you know i think queens is really the melting pot but i wouldn't say new york city really is um yeah and even now still you can tell like this block is entirely puerto rican and that block is entirely dominican and that block is entirely jamaican you know like you that you know growing especially in manhattan where you have the the numbers you know the numbers of the street you know that up you know it used to be this thing that me and my friends would say is you know when you've reached our neighborhood when there's no more white people on the train Mm, (laughs) and now that doesn't happen anymore because it used to be that 86th street was the last stop for any person who was not a person of color 86th street used to be the last stop okay early 2000s nobody was going past 86th street unless they were going to central park (laughs) right you know and so now it's really interesting to see you know what gentrification has actually done and i as a new york native you can see it based on how far real estate and what the prices of real estate are at the ends of the, you know, the two and three train all the way in Brooklyn and all the way in the Bronx. Yeah. Okay. So you're growing up in this uh, atmosphere in New York. And at some point you started reading what books were appealing to you when you were uh, at a young age. Well, I read a lot of poetry. Mm. I was introduced very young to Nikki Giovanni and Maya Angelou yeah. and Baldwin, very young. I My first chapter book was The Secret Garden, which mm. I love thinking about because I was just like, who was I that I was sitting there reading The Secret Garden when, it, when I was a really, I was like really, really young when I read that book. Yeah. But yeah, I read a lot of poetry and a lot of peers work as well, because I've been doing spoken words since I was a little girl. Uh-huh. And so spoken word has always been a huge part of my identity as a creator. Do you have writers in your family or were there any around you or any teachers or anyone who was a particular influence? I mean, a lot of my teachers recognized quite early, I would say maybe. Yeah, in second grade. Second grade was a big year for me. Um, Mm. I moved a few times, but I won a poetry contest. Mm. And I was I was the second place winner. And the first place winner was 16. And I was seven. So I in that moment, and it was like, you know, I just, my teachers submitted me when, you know, I was in second grade. And after that, all of my teachers kind of celebrated me because I was celebrated, you know, and I don't know if it would have been the same if I didn't win the contest. I really don't know, but I did. 
And my teachers would give me blank journals, my social workers. I was a very quiet child. You know, I was experiencing insane amounts of, uh, yeah, violence and just, you know, mobility. And I was changing classrooms a lot too, which meant that my education was all over the place, but I was really smart. So it was all good. But um, yeah, yeah, so my teachers and my social workers, everybody kind of just gave me journals and supported me in expressing myself through writing uh, before I allowed myself to really start speaking and performing. Yeah. And I think that the biggest impact on my creativity, though, if I would think about one teacher, it would definitely be Katora. I should probably hit her up too, because she's an icon still. But she was in my high school and uh, introduced me to Frida Kahlo. Oh, um, right. And I love Frida Kahlo. Yeah. Frida Kahlo's ability to look at the intricate nature of suffering and to put it on blast, to put it right before you, to paint her miscarriages, you know? And I'm over here, 12 years old, looking at these paintings like, holy shit, my life is so difficult, but this is okay if I'm allowing myself to look at it and to see it for what it is and to know that that is not the beginning, middle, or end of my life are not these experiences. And it, it really ignited me to become the writer that I am that looks at the wound, you know? And I always say this, I, I look at the wound so that we can heal from it. Because if we continue to ignore it or scrape it under the, the rug or say it's water under the bridge, we may just not know where the poison came from. We may, not just know, we may not know where the anger came from. We may not know how healing can actually begin and, you know, uh, be successful in the body if you don't recognize these things. Um, so shout out to Katora because I know it's a painter, but it really ignited me as a writer to be more honest and to be more transparent with what I was experiencing. Did your teacher have that in mind when uh, she presented you with Frida Kahlo? No, we were just, we were, that was actually just a, we were learning about Frida and she did a really great job in letting it take its time. And we really learned about this woman's life and we, we practiced her paintings. We watched films about her. We read interviews. It was a, it was a whole, you know, it was just one of those things in in our, in our English class. Right. Okay. So, yeah. And that's what I also found interesting was like in English class, we were looking at what identity is and how, you know, she was, Frida is obviously the icon of the self portrait, you know? Yeah. And so we were learning how to allow ourselves to be comfortable enough to make self portraits, um, which is essentially, I think, honestly, the foundation of my work, everything is a, is a different version image of someone I've been. Yeah. Uh, well, Frida, I mean, she's so fearless and just mm-hmm. in her, her life and her, in her letters, I mean, she's just a, a, a fierce persona. It's really, uh, it's really amazing that you were getting that much, you, you devoted that much time to her in an English class as part of the curriculum. It was probably a week, to be honest, but let me tell you, it never loved me. <laughs> yeah. Now, were you able to see any of her paintings in person? Well, then we were looking at pictures and stuff. But yeah. since actually this January, I uh, went to Mexico and I went to her house and I went to museums that had hundreds of her paintings. Well, her home has a, a bunch of her paintings. Um, but I just went all over Mexico looking at, you know, her life and where she did things. It was really beautiful. Yeah. Wow. What was the origin of that trip? Was that specifically to go see her things or were you in Mexico for another reason? Well, you know, 2020 has been a pretty big year for me. Mm. It's a lot of intensity because <laughs> my first children's book is an illustrated poem called Freedom We Sing which came out in July Mm -hmm. and my debut album 
which is called Witness, came out in September. But when I was approaching January, I the new year, I was like, Amira, your life is going to change. I had tours set up from March until next February. Wow. Like touring with my band, doing uh, shows and teaching <laughs> for the books and all of this stuff. So it was going to be the biggest year. I mean, it yeah. still is the biggest year of my career, but mobily, like mobile as well. And I, I saw all of the things and commitments I had. And I've never really taken a vacation before. Yeah. So I was like, where are we going? What are we doing? And my mother, who I speak about in Concrete Kids, who adopted me, she loved Mexico. loved, loved, loved Mexico. She worshiped Guadalupe. She was a Santera as well, which I talk about in the book as well. And, you know, her relationship to Mexico was lived in me as well. We ate the food, we, we worshiped the saints. We went to all of the, um, the independence day and all of the celebrations that they had in in Harlem because Harlem has a a vast Mexican community as well. And so I was like, my mother passed away a few years ago. And so I you know, I said, how can I celebrate myself this year and honor what an arrival this has been for me? Mm. You know, I went Mm -hmm. through a lot and I always wanted what I'm getting and what I'm doing every day. I always wanted to be a writer. I always wanted to be an actor. And I always, well, recently wanted to sing, you know? And so when I looked forward, I said, okay, well, we have to go somewhere where my mama's spirit would be as happy as I will, you know? And so I went to Mexico to honor her and to honor, um, yeah, to honor the arrival that this has been for me. Right. And Little did I know that it would be the last trip that I did. Yeah, I was going to say. So that 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 was that March to January. That that's the you're talking about. That was your plan for 2020, and it was all canceled mm-hmm. for the pandemic. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I actually, wow. I was doing. I I just started working on a the beginnings of an opera with my friend. Sivan and we were performing at like I don't know if you know Theatre de Châtelet is like the biggest opera house in France yeah. and we were working with the you know the Paris Chamber Orchestra and I was in France on stage with the orchestra in March mm. when the French president announced the shutdown wow. um, and so we were the last show to go up in the Châtelet and it was going to be you know spring roll into uh into an opera and suddenly you know obviously that didn't pan out but it was just crazy I was on stage in this opera house and it was like super cinematic and then I flew back home and I've been here ever since um so yeah okay well let's take a quick break and we'll come back and we'll talk about some of the books that you chose to discuss here amazing Okay, so what a uh, career, what a life. I don't know if people are, are uh, I mean, I'll, I'll explain this at the beginning in the introduction, but uh, I don't know if people are, are aware of how young you are. You're so accomplished, uh, and you were born uh, in the 90s, right? Yes, 1992. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's one of the things. You're you're one of the youngest guests we've ever had, and so wow. even yeah. So even though, for example, I want to go through the books that you mentioned as books that had been particularly influential to you. Even though many people have chosen uh, James Baldwin, for example, I'm really interested to hear how, why he, you know, how and why he resonated with you, uh, because you're you're sort of a generation below most of our guests, and and uh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested to hear what it was like for someone who was born in 1992 to get uh, Baldwin in in placed in their hands, and 
I'm wondering if it's if the Harlem connection was part of that at all. If someone had suggested to you, here's James Baldwin, he's another Harlem-based writer. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the Harlem pride is pretty deep. Yeah. Um, you know, I was raised on 109th Street, right down the street from the Duke Ellington statue. Mm-hmm. Um, I walked by the Apollo Const every weekend with my mother. Yeah. You know, so we it was it was everywhere. There was no way to escape the 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 black icon, so to speak, yeah. um, of New York City while living and being raised in Harlem. So that was pretty second nature. I can't even tell you when I was first faced with Baldwin. It had to mm. have been in school or, you know, amongst some poetry. But I, I really don't even know when I first... Wow, that's a really interesting... It's really interesting to even think about. Like, I can't even place it. But I do know that I got this James Baldwin, The Price of the Ticket collection. Mm-hmm from a table in London. I was living in London for uh, three years before I moved back literally in March during the pandemic. I said, we will not be in lockdown in London. But um, (laughs) I found, I saw this uh, collection of poems, uh, not collection, collection of essays. And it was 10 pounds, you know, Mm -hmm. very affordable. I said, what? This is, this incredible collection of essays is is mine um but i didn't realize you know i read so much baldwin when i was a kid but reading i you know i was reading his his novels Mm. and a Mm -hmm. poem here and there you know i was not sitting with his ethics his non-fiction expressions of life about himself his father what harlem was what harlem is you know and i was I found this at a huge turning point in my life because I just moved to London, you yeah. know, and he, James talks so well about the intricacy of being raised and living and getting an education and fighting for your life in mm-hmm. Harlem. Yeah. While talking about the sex and the, the dance and the sweat and the heat and the wonder, right? Mm. Like that's James Baldwin's key is, is putting everything. It's like everything's the extreme that life really is, you know? Yeah. And then him talking about the peace that he felt in Europe, yeah. you know? And I was, I moved to London and I just didn't even realize that, yeah, James Baldwin moved from Harlem to Europe. Because yeah. there was a little bit more peace and because his work was being incredibly celebrated, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it was really interesting because I moved to London because I got a play commissioned and I was like, well, I might as well go there because my, you know, not every single person I know is going to be able to fly to London to see this play. So I have to get to know the community to get to understand the audience that I'm, I'm writing for. Yeah. So I moved there and I'm just reading his essays every single day. You know, that's like my Bible. It's like 800 pages. And I just, every day I go back and I put little stars on the table of contents for how many times I've read each essay. But this book was instrumental in me being able to relax and write Concrete Kids Mm. because it's it's autobiographical. Everything in there is a fact. Yeah. My opinions are my opinion, but those are factual opinions about where I was and who I was at that time, you know. Yeah. And it was a lot. I didn't realize, you know, it's still quite close to me. I feel like I did feel like I was almost too young to write this um, at this point in my life, you know, just reflecting that deeply about something that, you know, I, t- I moved from Harlem when I was 19, yeah. you know, and so that was a little bit that was less than 10 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. like reflecting deeply on a time that was just a moment ago in the grand scheme of what I hope my life is, you know? Yeah. So Baldwin just makes me feel 
you know, really safe in talking about those things. Because at some point you're like, what memories are fabricated and which ones are real? Um, and mm. I think that pictures do that really well. You know, you'll take a picture and you'll remember that moment. But that year was a really hard year. So I just felt really safe in just being as honest as I possibly could be in this piece. Because what I didn't want to do was disservice myself or Harlem by not being honest or by polishing it. For who? And yeah. for what? Yeah, That's not the truth. And Baldwin has always been a purveyor of truth that has made me feel safe today. You know, I read these, especially as the uprisings continue. I, I, I sit there and I'm like, this is good information. This is, this is what I'm seeing today. This is what I know to expect. This is how I can start this conversation because it has already happened. Yeah, he was so, well, he's so intelligent and so incisive, but he's also, I think the reason why he's chosen so often by writers uh, to whom I ask this question is because he's so uncompromising, too. He he really, exactly. he's got this moral core and he he's unshakable, you know, he he holds mm-hmm. fast to it and uh, it's it's inspiring how bold he is and how fearless he is. Mm-hmm. Mm. I love it. I wonder, you know, he also, what I'm always struck by, too, is when he he was in this sort of self-exile or, you know, this this escape in Paris. Mm-hmm. But then he also felt this obligation to come back and he felt compelled mm-hmm. to return to the fray, even though America at that time was was going through real upheaval and, and he jumped right back into the thick of it. I'm wondering if yep. that uh, was also, you know, inspiring to you or, or made you want to return in, in some sense, or is that not? a part of your calculus when you decided to come back to America? Honestly, it is pretty, it, it was, I haven't even thought about the fact that James returned, you know, mm-hmm. um, or the fact that I have really, it's been a surreal to return during this time. Yeah, I yeah. came and I couldn't even see my family for months because I was all over Europe before oh, this happened. Right. And, you know, right. And so I didn't see people for months. Um, and so it was like, what is New York? What is location? What is your environment? Is your environment your home? Is your home where you are? Is it your body? You know, and I think that was a big part. It was like, where does my body feel safest in the world? New York City. Mm. Would I say that I returned to New York City? No. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's interesting. But I, I have a lot of uh, a lot of feelings about this return and what it means to now build a home here from a place of knowing myself, because I think one thing that James really does talk about that just made me feel sane when I was in the UK is that our reflection as Black American people is very specifically received in, you know, in Europe and in, in, in the United Kingdom. And just knowing that, like, you will feel different as a human being and the way you are received is different made me feel really safe in knowing that whatever I was returning to would also be different. And that's fine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because I'm different. I'm not the same person I was before I left. I'm not the same person I was before I started Concrete Kids. The level of healing and, like you said, uncompromising reflection that I had to do to be able to write the things that I wrote. And I know that they were a choice. What I wrote, everything that was printed was a choice by me. But I knew that they were, there are children who are living exactly the life I led. And I wish that I could say that it was different. 
you know. And if anything, reading Baldwin made me realize <laughs> Baldwin certainly wished in 1950 that I would not be sitting here in 2020 yeah. having the same conversation, yeah. you know. And I said, right. like you said, I'm a generation. I had to look so far because Baldwin, Toni Morrison, Nikki Giovanni, Maya, they got, you know, Zora Neale Hurston. They were printed in times where what publishing was allowing the level of, of transparency that was allowed to be published was very different than what is allowed to be published now mm, um, in yeah. terms of that transparency. And like now that's getting a second wave, I would say, maybe not second, but it's getting a huge wave now where we can look at books like White Fragility. Oh, wow. It's called that? Like, mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, just, and just like suddenly the confrontation's back in the picture. But Baldwin is the last place where I saw myself reflected that honestly. You know, and so I wanted to be able to do something in a way through Concrete Kids that allowed that reflection to be from a person in the 90s in this Harlem that you may see somewhere else beyond the Renaissance. The Renaissance was still happening. Here I am. Yeah. With, I mean, we did probably, I think we did three or four episodes just devoted to the exchange that Baldwin had with William Faulkner during the civil mm. rights era. And and one of the points Baldwin kept making was, you say, go slow, you say, wait, you say, it's not time, you say, don't push too hard, but, you know, wait for what? What are we, what are we waiting for? And how many years go by? Like, we've, we've been waiting and mm-hmm. if we continue to wait, in the meantime, there are entire lives that are being lived. And, you know, to to hear, I mean, to think now it's been 60 years, 60, 60 mm-hmm. years or more. I mean, did you have that in mind when you were writing Concrete Kids is let me send a message to people that will help them heal, even though we're we're still in this, I guess you could call it a crisis? Yeah, I mean, that was my whole intention. The, the mm-hmm. Actually, when I when Penguin contacted me to do this book, we obviously had no idea what it was going to be. You know, it's a part of a collective getting activists to talk about their area of expertise and to off, what, what do you want to offer the youth right now? You yeah. know, yeah. and they called me and they said, we love your work. We want to know what you what message do you have for young people right now? Mm-hmm. And I tried writing essays. OK, a yeah. lot of the other the other books um, are more so personal, intimate essays where you just lay with them in their thought. And, and it's really beautiful. I tried doing that. <laughs> yeah. And I realized that the way, the things that I needed to say needed to be able to reach people who don't like essays. Mm. And, yeah. and re- needed, needed to be more accessible than, than that almost for me. Um, because again, if we're talking about, you know, I told them, they hit me up and we were looking at gun violence. We were looking at the amount of sheer young people dying is, is, is raising a generation on grief, you know? Mm. And I think that now that we have all of the social media and everything, we have a lot more awareness. And that's something too, in the first page of this Baldwin uh, essay collection, he says, you know, I feel bad for the ones who are growing up now. They know just how different their lives are from anyone else. I was sitting at home and didn't know nothing else. Now you have the TV and the radio letting them know. And I'm like, wow. And now we have Instagram and TikTok and all these things, especially with kids being homeschooled, you know, and having to put on the Zoom camera and, you know, it exposes their background. And I just think about who I would have been if I was that young and my situation at home was that on blast. You know what I'm saying? Mm, yeah. And so I wanted to, one, put up in a place where 
you know, I knew a lot of young people would be receiving this text. Look how dead ass I am in this. I'm talking to you about how we went to the funeral and then we went ahead had dinner afterwards and there was joy all over it. Because it's not a shocking experience, you know, especially now, regardless of what anybody knows, what we know now is that for the last several years, young people have been faced with these headlines mm. with fear of walking outside. They may just die sleeping in their homes, walking down the street, leaving the store. And so it's like, how do you tell kids just go play when where I was raised, we weren't allowed to play outside. Mm. I wasn't allowed to play. I spent most of my 20s, honestly, running in in the woods and going to the beach and weeping and looking at the waves and trying to go apple picking and shit. Because where I was raised, we were not allowed to play outside. And I was across the street from Central Park. And there's young people today who cannot leave the house after 4 p.m. in winter because it is dark and they're still kidnapping young people in Harlem. You know, there's an entire... uh, uh, entire generation of children who who continue to be dismissed because these things that are happening, adults are talking about it and they're making decisions for them without talking to them. And I think that right now we're in this beautiful position where our, our adults are making space to take young people seriously in a way that we've never seen before or we've never allowed to happen before. And so, yeah, anyway, I just get really excited when I think about it. But yeah. I wanted to write Concrete Kids as a place for, you know, here's my story, unapologetically written, in print. This is something I always wanted, something I did. And when I got the opportunity, I chose to tell my story because my story is exactly how I got here. And if you empower young people and adults alike to really believe in the power of their own stories and their own perspectives to the point where they can respect themselves enough to heal with themselves, then we may just create a space in the world where the honesty is allowed to exist and we can really disintegrate these conversations that have been happening for the last several hundred years. You know what I mean? Mm. Nothing's going to change until we feel comfortable with the lives we've led, the things that have happened to us and the things that we chose to do. Yeah. So yeah, I wanted it to be an opportunity to move forward and for young people to really take their lives seriously. And for all the people who may see themselves written in this book, I did not know that, you know, I knew that there were other foster kids because I was in foster homes with other children, you know, but I didn't, I didn't know a single foster kid who was successful. I didn't know a single, you know, victim of sexual, you know, abuse who was living a happy life. You know, everyone I saw around me was celebrating, but still suffering. And I wanted Concrete Kids to put that into a context where you can see that I am alive still. I am joyous and I am comfortable with the life I've led. And the more comfortable we let young people be, the less afraid of themselves they will become. Mm. So you had a dual aim of of the books. You're, on the one hand, it's it's written for kids to tell them it's okay to be who they are and that someone is out there who knows what it's like to have gone through what they're going through. But also, it's broader than that. It's it's for all readers to tell, kind of to tell the world what it's like to be a concrete kid. Yeah. And also to like, I wanted it to be for adults as well, because I think, yeah, I think that if any of the adults in my life were asking me the right questions, the mm. right ones, my life would have been significantly different. I would have been safer in the world if somebody would have chosen to treat me like the the person that I was and the, the circumstances I was being faced with. If anybody would have spoken to me honestly, mm. I think that a lot of teachers 
especially when you look at, you know, a lot of, uh, quotes, low income communities and stuff have teachers that are not from those communities. They go in there, they're being faced with things they've never seen in their own communities. And they see it happening to young people who they don't know how to speak to, who they don't know how to connect with, who they don't have the time because, you know, education in the States doesn't really make it a priority or anywhere really to have the time to learn how these children need to be educated, you know? And so again, I wanted Concrete Kids to be a place for teachers and honestly, just anybody really to be able to see, look, 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 here's a conversation starter. How did you feel about that poem that really dives into the community you're actually from? This made me see this for the very first time. What if I asked my students questions Mm -hmm. before I assume that their behavior is something that is learned, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I wanted it to be a springboard for conversation, a safe reflection, and a place where people understand that it's all good. But life is more than staring at at, at the things that have traumatized us mm. and doing nothing with that. <laughs> yeah. It's about getting acquainted, getting comfortable, and dancing with it because it's true. And multiple truths can exist at the same time. Yeah. Well, you know, it sounds like you have a a third format, but it sounds like what you're doing is a lot like what Baldwin did with his essays and a lot like what Frida was doing with her paintings. Yes. That makes me happy. It's what I, it's <laughs> honestly, I mean, it's honestly all I was trying, all I've been, they, they are my biggest inspiration. Yeah. Um, right. Oh. That and jazz. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, let me uh, read a quote here. This is Rosario Dawson, who I think a lot of people will know, um, just a wonderful, amazing actress. Uh, And she said, quote, Amira's wondrous offer life in all its terror and splendor is inspiring to witness. And I'm wondering, let's let's break that quote into pieces here. The wondrous offer life. Where do you think that came from? Do you feel that all the time or on good days or does that come from within or, or were you born with that or, or where did you get your wondrous offer life? Um, I think it's something that definitely has been cultivated in me mm-hmm. from a very young age. I, you know, I have witnessed a lot of miracles mm-hmm. and a lot of terror. Mm. And I allow all of them to be true. And I've been doing that since a very young age. I met, actually have known Rosario for more than half my life. She directed me in a play when I was a little girl. Mm. I was at the time going through a lot. I was just about to get adopted and I was like, you know, losing my mind. And it was really, you know, but I was also in this play and was standing with a bunch of young women and was being invited to do something that I always wanted to do in a room with people that I recognized from TV. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. So it was like even in that, even in that moment that I met her, it's this tension. I, I've been invited. And because I've allowed myself to see, I see the beauty in everything. Like I have absolutely no, no wish that my life was any different, you mm. know? And that's also the thing is like concrete kids within those pages. It's a beautiful cover. Shout out to yeah. Um, but a beautiful cover, but within it is a lot of intensity. And, but for me, all I can do is celebrate it because it's this book that gets to exist in the world. You know what I mean? And it's like, what is this back and forth? It's all truths being true. Um, and so I think I've just allowed that to be. There's no way that I could be having a war within myself and not notice that the sun rose this morning, you know? Mm, yeah. Okay. I have a surprise bonus question for you. 
listening. Okay. And to set this up, I'm going to talk about a book that we haven't yet talked about, but was another one that you had chosen, which was Black Ink, an anthology mm. of black writers on the peril, power, and pleasure of writing and reading. And just for anyone who's not familiar with it, it's this amazing collection. It starts with Frederick Douglass, and it runs through Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston and James Baldwin and and Alice Walker, and all the way to Edwidge Danticat, and contemporary authors like Ta-Nehisi Coates, and, and Chimamanda Ngozi, and Dietschy, and, and Barack Obama. So all of them are talking about stories, and storytelling, and literacy, and what it means to write, and how to be a writer, how to be a Black writer, loving literature, and, and so on. And so, okay, here's your surprise bonus question. Mm-hmm. One night, you fall asleep with the Black Ink anthology still open. It turns out, you're going to have magic dreams. You find yourself entering into the pages of the book. Not only that, the anthology's writers are there too. All of them are alive and available. A guide appears and says, Amira, you are so lucky. You get to spend an hour with any of these writers talking about whatever you'd like. Just go ahead and knock on their door. Which writer do you choose and what do you plan to talk about? Interesting. I love this. Um, it's really timely, too, because in two years, you'll know why, but I'm writing a really interesting historical fiction novel right now. Ah, um, right. So this is very exciting. <laughs> uh, Do a little character development. <laughs> no, I know, right? Um, ooh, I wish I could run in, I wish I had the copy with me. Okay, let me think. Honestly, I would want to talk to Frederick Douglass. Mm. Yeah. And I would want to talk about, I just love the, in Black Ink, the, the, we learn how Frederick Douglass came to read. Yeah. And it just, I don't know, I would want to talk about what language felt like. Yeah. What right. language felt like when he could finally communicate with himself in writing. Yeah. I think literacy is a really interesting thing. And I think, again, literacy is, is a, a, a number of agreements based on societal acceptance, yeah. you know? Right. And it's chosen language, chosen letters, chosen communication. And I have seizures, so sometimes I cannot speak. Mm. And that was a very interesting place for me to go because it forced me, one, I started learning sign language, Two, I realized no one around me knew sign language. Three, it made me recognize literacy within the students that I teach, like literacy issues, because like the way I had trouble forming words, it wasn't of me. It had nothing to do with my ability right. to do it, but it was, a, it was a level of difficulty that was also a part of me. But under those circumstances, I suppose I would really want to sit with Frederick Douglass and ask him what, what it felt like to read his first sentence and to be able to write his name for the first time. In a world like that, I can't imagine what it was, yeah. what, what the satisfaction, because it was more than just, oh, a personal goal. It was everything. It yeah. was everything. And yeah. that's something I really, really, really relate to. When I was younger, I realized, oh, they listen to me when I write. You know, I said, oh, OK, this is where it goes then. Oh, OK, this is where I take myself more seriously than anyone else. Because if I knew anything as a young kid, my life was what it was. But I realized that what I was saying at age four was being taken seriously in court, mm. you know? Yeah. And 
So when I was older and people like questioned my opinions or, you know, tried to make me feel like, oh, because I was young, I couldn't have a voice or couldn't defend myself or wasn't educated enough to have a certain conversation. I was just like, my word is taken into and by the law. <laughs> yeah. I will never let anybody question me, you know, and to not have that access while yeah, I don't know. I just, I, yeah, anyway. But that's why I would be so interested in talking with Frederick about it because I remember what it felt like. I remember the day I did my first poem yeah. out loud. I remember it viscerally in my stomach and in my body. And so I uh, want to know how his body felt. I'm going to circle back to something you said earlier, too, where one of the things that's interesting about Frederick Douglass is his awareness that this was a means of oppression and that the illiteracy was a, a means of control and, and a way of exerting mm -hmm. power. And and when he first learned to read, the awakening that mu he must have had that, you know, that he was one of thousands of people who had had this denied, uh, or millions mm -hmm. of people, and, and the feeling that what a power it would be uh, if it was extended to everyone else, mm -hmm. you know, and feeling like it must be this latent power, if he can feel it within himself, that just imagine if you could share it with everyone else in a world where mm -hmm. everyone else would have that literacy as well. And it reminds mm -hmm. me of something you had said earlier when you were talking about your book of, you know, wanting to, now that you've had this experience for yourself, wanting to reach out to kids who are kind of trapped in that world where they don't have a voice or they're not being asked the right questions. And it's almost like trying to awaken that in them to to let them mm -hmm. realize the power that they have. It's it's a, 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 a very generous, but kind of an awe-inspiring feeling to think of. Yeah, it really is crazy, man. I can't believe it. The book comes out tomorrow. Uh, okay, well, uh, yes. So the book is called Concrete Kids, and it's part of the New Pocket Change Collective series. I think everyone should run out and buy it and have it on their bookshelf. And I think schools should buy it and libraries should buy it. And we should do everything we can to get this in the hands of uh, kids for all over the world, uh, whether they live in the city or whether they're someone who uh, is like me, where I was, you know, living in the middle of nowhere, but kind of fascinated by the kids I saw on Sesame Street and the kids who, who lived in the city. Yeah. It just seemed like uh, like such a different experience. And, and it's important, I think, to to kind of stretch everyone in that way. Amira Leon, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And everybody, if you want to have a dual experience, definitely listen to my album Witness as well. Mm. It's a 15-track album that explores a lot of the literal moments that I discussed in Concrete Kids. So there's songs that have sister poems in the book. And so it was, it's just a really interesting experience that I didn't recognize was happening, but they were written at the same time and they're definitely kin. So when you're done in relaxing your soul, get your ears ready. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thank you so much. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Amir Leone for joining me. And you really should check out Concrete Kids and check out Amira's music as well. It's on YouTube and Spotify and it's powerful stuff. An old soul and the fire of youth. Highly recommended. So, oh, and speaking of Frederick Douglass, we're going to be looking at his amazing life. 
coming up soon and one of his most famous books soon after that. Mike Palindrome returns for The Cherry Orchard and Volume 2 of his look at Proust on the Twitterverse. And we're going to be looking at Kazuo Ishiguro with another special guest soon as well. Interesting times here at the History of Literature. Kind of weird to be cranking these out from D.C. And I do want to apologize to the boomers. I know you've done a lot of good things, too. I know that for many of you, your heart is in the right place and you're as frustrated as I am. Maybe it's a little bit of complaining I'm doing from the perspective of Generation X. Maybe that's unfair. So... There you have it. We're sort of mixing revolution and reflection these days, I guess. I hope you're all staying safe and being well. We're teamed up with LitHub Radio and with the Podglomerate. More about them at www.thepodglomerate.com. And you can subscribe to our show. Please do that so you don't miss anything. And if you'd like to help us out, you can do that at patreon.com slash literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Pod Glomer, a Sonic Universe.